Hello and welcome to the Village Church Podcast. My name is John and we are glad to have you join us. We work to deliver our most recent preaching content to you as soon as possible, so let's get into God's Word together. If you have a Bible with you, you can find your way to Exodus, the first chapter, Exodus chapter 1, beginning this journey last week with, we began Exodus with an overview of Genesis, so I hope you were paying attention last week, and if you were not, all of our sermons are recorded. You can go back and listen to them. Uh, I'm aware that sometimes I pack a whole lot into the preaching of God's Word, and so if you want to catch up in Exodus and stay up to date as we go through it, uh, you can do so online. But last week, if you're like, man, what is the book of Genesis all about? What, What happens in the book of Genesis? I would encourage you to go back and listen to last week's message. It sets the stage for the book of Exodus. Uh, The reality I shared last week of these five books, these first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, is that they're all broken into singular books. You can read them as parts of a fifth, but the reality behind the first five books of the Bible is that they are a whole. Moses wrote five books, and they absolutely all go together. And I think that when we get into the the latter half of the book of Exodus, I think you're going to see that happen where we can't leave Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy alone as we learn from the latter half of the book of Exodus where it gets into the tabernacle and all the stuff that is made for service in the worship of God. Briefly, Exodus was written by Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the the Pentateuch, the Torah in the Jewish faith, all written by Moses. The purpose is that every new generation of God's people would forever remember how God delivers, redeems, and dwells with his people. Written for the purpose that every new generation of God's people would be reminded of how God delivers, redeems, and dwells with his people. Through Exodus 1, verses 1 through 7, We examined how all of the descendants of Jacob, it says what in verse 6, verse 5, 70 persons, how all of these 70 persons came to be in Egypt, how at the end of verse 7, the land was filled with them. We looked at the reality of of Exodus 1, 1 through 7 is fulfilled because of the covenant that God makes with Adam, continues through Noah moves then to Abraham, passes to Isaac, moves to Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. Jacob and his sons end up in Egypt. So we are watching the progression of God's covenant to man, how God interacts with man as we move through this. Genesis 3.15 is an important verse as we move through the book of Exodus Remembering that God said, in the sin of man in the Garden of Eden, God said to the serpent, cursed are you above all livestock. He said, I will put enmity between your offspring and the offspring of the woman. I will put enmity. I will put strife. I will put contention. Whatever word you want to use there, God has placed a problem between the seed of the serpent, the devil, and the seed of the woman, which is the promise of God that life would be preserved through the seed of the woman. That promise comes 
eventually to Abraham, which we're going to look at very briefly again this morning, where God says to Abraham, first in Genesis 12, I will make you a father of many nations, and all the people of the earth will be blessed through you. That is God's promise coming through, so that seed of the woman endures into that promise and then also beyond. From God's promise comes a people, and out of this people, God is building a nation. It says in verse 7 of Exodus chapter 1, they grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Today we're going to look at Exodus chapter 1, verses 8 through 22. Would you read with me? Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. When the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we pray, God, that you would give us wisdom as we navigate your word this morning. Father, I pray that you would help us to see your promise through the affliction of your people. Help us to see your promise and so be emboldened in our faith as we are afflicted in this life in many ways. I pray, Father, that the promise we see continuing on from your hand in the life of the Israelites, Father, that we would understand your promises are being carried out in our life through our affliction as well. Father, help us as we work through sensitive material this morning. I pray that you be honored and glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. I, uh, I had a different title up there, Seeing Promise and Affliction. This is the thought that I want us to understand as we go through here, but I decided that I was going to title this sermon Pharaoh because next week we're going to meet Moses. I thought that I was going to try and cram Exodus 1 verse 8 through chapter 2 verse 10, and I thought that's probably a bit much, so I, I cut it right in half, and today we're just going to deal with meeting Pharaoh. Uh, but Pharaoh is one of the most prominent characters throughout the first half of the book of Exodus. In fact, Pharaoh and Moses are the two main characters, and there's a supporting cast to them as well. I want to remind you all, Exodus is historical narrative. This is not a story. This is not made up by someone. This is given to us by the Holy Spirit, 
Men wrote as they heard from God. Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is recording for us the historical narrative of God's people. Pharaoh, it says in verse 8, now there arose a new king. Pharaoh, maybe as a shock to you, is not a name. It is a title. It seems elementary, but I want to make sure that we establish this. It's actually quite important that we understand that Pharaoh is a title and not a name. And here's why. In Egypt, it is the title of the king. If, If Egypt has a king, he is called Pharaoh. Says there is a new king. To this point in scripture, we have seen a, a Pharaoh character now three times. This is the third time that we have seen. We see one uh, early in Genesis, we see one later in, in Genesis with Joseph when he goes to Egypt, and we see this Pharaoh now. So this is the third time that we've encountered this title, and it is extremely likely that every man who has had this title has been a different man. So there's been one, two, three Pharaohs as we have moved along. I also believe, and I think you'll see as we move through, that when Moses returns to Egypt in Genesis chapter 5, it's not the same Pharaoh that we're talking about in Genesis chapter 1. There's a reason to believe that the Pharaoh that Moses goes into is not the Pharaoh that we're reading about right here. So there are multiple men holding this title. They are simply the king, the kings of Egypt. Of note, of all the Pharaohs in the scripture that are mentioned, only two are named. We do not know the name of this Pharaoh. The only two that we know, one is in 2 Kings 23, and the other is in Jeremiah, I think, 44. I wrote it down, Jeremiah 44. Pharaoh Necho and Pharaoh Hophra. There are no other Pharaohs named in all of Scripture. Interesting. The people of Egypt are always enemies of God's people, and they're not named. Interesting to me. Something to keep track of as we go through. It says in verse 8, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. I circled those words, who did not know Joseph. How is it possible that this man Pharaoh comes into power and does not know Joseph? Considering what we learned of Joseph last week and the preservation of God's people through the work of Joseph, the Pharaoh in Joseph's day made him the second most powerful man in the land. The Bible says, only as regards the throne... Am I, Pharaoh, more powerful than Joseph? How did this guy come to be Pharaoh in verse 8 and not know of Joseph? Well, one reason. Based on genealogies and ages, from all that generation in verse 6 to a new king in verse 8, we have advanced the historical narrative a couple of hundred years. So when we read the Bible, it's very important. I'm not only preaching, I'm hoping to help teach you. As we read the Bible, it's very important to understand that every verse is not always a minute-by-minute accounting. You can move great spans of time in one simple verse. And so it is believed to have been a couple of hundred years between Joseph and all that generation and a new king in verse 8. How did he not know him? How still did this Pharaoh not know him? Well, as we understand countries and nations in the world, uh, even as we consider More recent history, if we consider the czars of Russia, if we consider emperors in in China, at times there is one dynasty that will come in and utterly remove everything that remained of the previous dynasty. One family takes over and obliterates everything that existed of the family prior to them. So whatever was associated with the first pharaoh, let's call him Joseph's pharaoh, whatever existed with him, if this is a new dynasty or a new family coming into power, then this let's call him Israel's Pharaoh because he's not, I think, Moses' Pharaoh, comes in, he's like, gone. 
We're not going to remember anything that has happened. We're going to wipe out all of the history. History starts now with me because these men are very arrogant, which is an interesting mark of the seed of the serpent. Arrogance. Arrogance is promoted in their living, in their actions, in the way they conduct their kingdom. He comes in and says, he did not know him. The answer, how he did not know him, we simply do not know. But the Bible says, he did not know Joseph. When Moses is writing that to us, we need to understand. What Moses is telling us is, this Pharaoh did not care. He did not regard. Whatever had happened before simply did not matter. I want us to remember as we talk about the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, I want us to remember enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. He did not know Joseph or anything associated with him. And so there we see the seed of the serpent enduring now in Pharaoh. Also of note, as I was reading some different historical things, do you know what one of the most prominent symbols in Egypt is? Anybody with a show of hands at a singular guess? Not the pyramid, not the sphinx. Do you know what one of the most prominent symbols throughout all of Egypt is? If you're thinking a serpent, you're right. And that's not just coincidental. We don't believe in coincidence. We believe that God orchestrates things. And upon Pharaoh's crown through archaeological studies, they've come to understand that there would actually have been an erect cobra serpent on the crown of the Pharaoh. Fascinating. Seed of the woman, seed of the serpent. He does not know Joseph. He does not know any of his generation. He does not know his family. He does not know his God. He does not know his land. He does not know. Look what he says. This new king arises. A new king arose who, does not, who did not know Joseph, verse 9, and he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. This is an important phrase. Verse 10, come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. These are notes you want to write down. Let us deal shrewdly, lest they, one, multiply, two, fight against us, three, escape the land. This is Pharaoh's concern. They're too many. They're too strong. They might fight against, there's too many of them. They might fight against us. They might leave. So Pharaoh is concerned about those things. The phrase that's important, let us deal shrewdly with them. We understand shrewd business deals. We understand uh, being wise. Let's be, let's be shrewd in our decisions. What Pharaoh is saying here, though, amounts to come, let us be wise in our own eyes and deal with them as we think is right. And all throughout Scripture, God condemns those who view themselves as wise in their own eyes. Pharaoh is saying, look, their number, they might fight against us, they might get away, we must do something. So what does he do? Therefore, they set taskmasters and they afflict with heavy burdens They pressed the people of Israel. We don't know how many at this point in time, 70 in all, but now they filled the land. There's too many of them. They're too mighty for us. They continue to multiply. We have no idea how many people we're talking about, but Pharaoh says we must do something. Let's make them slaves. They impress upon them. They press them into service. They appoint taskmasters over them. They're building cities for Pharaoh. That's that word there, store cities. These are treasure hoards for Pharaoh. Pharaoh is using these captives to build his store cities so that he can say, look at me. 
Look at how wealthy I am. Look at how prominent I am. And I'm doing it all on the back of these people that I'm afraid of as I hold them in subjection to my rule. One commentary writer notes, verse 11 through 14, look what it says. Set taskmasters over them, what? To afflict them with heavy burdens, verse 12. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, the more they spread. And the Egyptians were afraid of them, look at 13. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Twice Moses records that they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. One commentary notes, and I quote, what Pharaoh is doing here, quote, break their spirit, ruin their health, discourage marrying since their children would have to be born into slavery and incorporate themselves with the Egyptians. Thus he hoped to cut off the name of Israel that it may no longer be in remembrance. Do you understand? This isn't just a situation of they're too many, they're too mighty, there's, we got to do something. This is enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. I must get rid of them. And we can look throughout our history and see other opportunities and attempts where the seed of the serpent, because of the enmity between them, has tried to eliminate the seed of the serpent. We absolutely saw this through 1930s and 1940s in Europe with the wholesale slaughter of the Jewish people. That was absolutely enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, trying to eliminate any, any shred, any remnant. People are like, why, why, was, why was Hitler doing all that he was doing? Why was he trying to eliminate God and eliminate the Bible and eliminate the Jews? What was he doing? This is a matter of the seed of the serpent at enmity with the seed of the woman. If it's not clear enough in verse 11 and 14, 11 through 14, Pharaoh's actions become brutally clear. In verse 15, Pharaoh orders the Hebrew midwives to kill every newborn son. And then in verse 22, Pharaoh orders his own people, if they have a son, throw it in the river. Pharaoh is so set on removing the people of Israel from his land. He's going to, what? He's going to kill off their means of reproducing as a people. He's going to take the women into the Jewish culture and eradicate the line of Jacob's family. He would, if possible, eradicate the seed of the woman from his land. But then we have these two Hebrew midwives. It's interesting here that Pharaoh is not named, but these two lowly midwives... Shifran Pua says the midwives feared God. These women disobeyed God, disobeyed Pharaoh in order to obey God. They deceive him. They deceive Pharaoh about the birth of the sons. He says, what is this you have done in letting them live? You might be reading it. It's likely because I asked this question even of myself. I'm reading this, and these women outright lie to Pharaoh. Pastor, is there a way that you can help me understand how these women lied and God honors them? Right? Because if I'm a skeptic in the world, I'm looking for any opportunity to poke a hole in what we believe about the Bible. And look at, God says don't lie, but then he honors these two women because they lie. Is lying a sin? Yes, it is. Does God deal well with or honor sin? No, he does not. Did these women lie to Pharaoh? According to what we see, 
why would you say they lied? According to what scripture tells us, which is all we have to go on, how would you read this and how would you say they lied? Lying is a sin. God does not honor sin. Yet here we have these women recorded in scripture for all of time as having been dealt well with and honored and given families because of this quote-unquote lie that they told. We're led then to believe somehow these women found an honorable way to do what they did. Somehow they found an honorable way to do what they did in saying to Pharaoh, listen, by the time we get there, the baby's born. We're supposed to rip a newborn baby from the mother and kill the baby. Somehow we are led to believe these women found an honorable way to do what they did. We simply don't know how they did it. This past week, major news in our world happened. This is why we preach the Bible expositionally. This is why we open a text, and I don't preach a topic or a subject that I like. It's why we open the Bible and we preach straight through. There is absolutely no way. I started telling people toward the end of 2021, I think I'm going to preach through Exodus. I started telling people that in this room last year. There is absolutely no way we could have known that when we would open Exodus chapter 1, 8 through 22, that major actions in our own country that are causing outrageous amounts of conflict and turmoil in the lives of our citizens was going to happen the week that we opened to Pharaoh killing babies. Before I say what I'm about to say, I want you to understand that wherever you stand, whatever your side may be, God has a clear line, and it is not up to us to define it or to move it. I understand that there may be decisions represented in this room that may cause grief, that may cause regret, and I understand that the topic I'm about to talk about may be sensitive. I am hoping to communicate the truth of God's word to you as sensitively as possible. I recognize that it may sting a little bit. This passage is often used by pastors in churches to speak on abortion. And the reason is because that is precisely what Pharaoh is doing. He is ordering the death of children. When you serve as a midwife, verse 16, to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. And then when that didn't work, to his own people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile. What is happening here is murder. It is the shedding of innocent blood. I want us to catch a few glimpses from God's word about what the Lord says about the shedding of innocent blood. One, Proverbs 6, verse 16. The Bible says in that passage of scripture, there are six things that God hates, seven things that are abominable. And among that list is the shedding of innocent blood. Now this goes well beyond just infanticide here. This goes beyond abortion as we know it in our day. This goes to the shedding of innocent blood. God does not condone murder in any way. God hates the shedding of innocent blood. 
in Leviticus chapter 18, God tells his people, the land that they're going into, the land of the Canaanites, do not walk in the ways of those who offer their children in the fire. We would understand these in different senses, but to get a grasp in this ancient pagan religion, they would burn their children in the fire. And I don't mean singe them or scorch them. They would cast them into a furnace to be consumed as an offering to God. God gives Israel in Exodus 21, we'll cover this in, well, a couple of years, I guess. God gives Israel a law protecting against not just a pregnant woman's unborn child. If we read in context, there are other things that are at play in this section of Scripture. But God does specifically talk about if a pregnant woman, because two bozos got into a fight and got out of control and couldn't control themselves, strike the woman so that her unborn child dies, God says, a life for a life. Well, the question in our day, it's fascinating the things that God's word addresses that we don't necessarily want to talk about, but we must. It's not comfortable, we must talk about these things. Well, pastor, that's great. When does life start? This is the great debate in our time. Well, when is it a life? It's not a life until it comes out of the womb and it's screaming and it's crying. If you're believing the Bible, you believe something differently, or you should. When does life actually start? David writes prophetically in Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16, life begins at conception. If you're here this morning and you've ever wondered where I or the Village Church stands on this issue, pay attention, because I'm about to tell you. Life begins at conception. It does not begin at a number of weeks. In fact, if you go into human history, numbers of weeks and trimesters is a recent development. We knew of one thing and one thing only throughout all of history. A woman is pregnant and a woman gives birth to a child. Life begins at conception. David, prophetically writing, talks about God seeing his unformed substance. You knit me together. God knows the child being developed in the womb as soon as the child begins developing. And if we are rightly thinking about God, God knows the child before the child begins developing in the womb. From before the foundation of the world, you knew me, you saw me. For those with faith in Jesus Christ, before the foundation of the world, God wrote your name in the book of life. Life begins at conception. Genesis chapter 25, Rebecca is told, two nations are in your womb. Not two nations will come out of and be when they're born. They are now currently in your womb. And from within you, two peoples shall be divided. In Luke chapter 1, the word of God specifically tells us twice that when Mary, the mother of our Lord Jesus, approached her cousin Elizabeth, pregnant with John the Baptist, Christ's cousin, she comes in and Elizabeth says to her, Who am I that the mother of my Lord would come to me? For since the moment your greeting hit my ear, the baby inside leapt for joy. The word of God addressing life in the womb as life in the womb, never questioning when is it life. There's a pregnant woman, there's life in the womb. I am not 
so naive enough to think that I understand everything about this complex issue that faces us today. And I have no idea what past decisions may have been made that are represented in the room, none whatsoever. I know this. I never anticipated that at 40 years old, I would know barely a family not affected by divorce. That tells me I would probably be shocked to know the number of women affected by abortion. I'm just not naive enough to think that it may be in the room. I say this with as much loving kindness as I possibly can. Regardless of your political affiliation, your thoughts on the matter, I come to you solely with God's word. If you are a Christian with faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, it is utterly impossible for you to condone something that God hates. You will have to justify your view of supporting something that God hates before the throne of Almighty God. I hate that. And you said it was okay. You went along with it. You will have to rectify that. It is fundamentally impossible for the people of God to support something that God hates. It would be one of the greatest answers of prayer in my lifetime. Not of my life, in my lifetime. It's been a prayer often, prayed this morning, that God would remove this from our land. I cannot imagine the judgment of God when people from this country stand before him having condoned, allowed, and approved of the wholesale murder of life. There is a terrible judgment being stored up for that. It would be a great answer to prayer in my lifetime if a national government's judicial system would recognize the sanctity of life from conception and overturn the practice of legalized abortion in our land. God's will be done. But there is a difference, and we must acknowledge it, between today's abortion issue and what is happening here in the text of Exodus chapter 1. This is not simply, not simply, how can we even say those words? This is not simply the murder of the unborn. This is enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. But look what happens. Verse 12, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. Look at verse 20. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. How is it that these people grew strong, that they multiplied? And let's ask this question, which is a carryover from last week. Why in the world did the people of Israel even remain in the land? Pharaoh recognizes too many, too mighty. They could rise up against us like the kids in this room against the adults and whip us. What are we doing? There's too many of them. What do we do? Pharaoh says the people are too many, the people are too mighty, the people have grown strong. The answer is, as you find your way to Genesis chapter 15, the answer starts in that before Pharaoh, who did not know Joseph, before Jacob and his 70 descendants, before Jacob's father Isaac, the word of the Lord came to Abraham. Genesis chapter 15. You remember last week we looked at the promise of God to Abraham. I will multiply you. I will make your offspring great. Everyone will be blessed between because of you. Exodus, or Genesis chapter 15 verse 6. 
the Bible tells us this. And he, Abraham, believed the Lord, and he, was, and he counted it, he, the Lord, counted it to him, Abraham, as righteousness. This is a very important point for us to make note of. Our right standing with God has always been on the basis of faith alone. We typically don't start talking about that until we talk about Jesus Christ and having faith in Jesus Christ. Put your faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, but the reality is our faith is in the promise of God that comes to us through Jesus Christ. We recognize by faith what God has done. In Genesis 15, verse 6, we have our very first in faith alone reference, and it is Abraham. It's always been faith alone that has made us right before God. Move down to verse 12. There's a deep interaction happening here between God and Abraham. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell on him. Side note, the only other place in the Bible where this type of language is used is when Adam is made to go into a deep sleep and God takes a rib and forms the woman. Specific language, like it's really worth paying attention to. A great and dreadful darkness fell upon him. Verse 13, then the Lord said to Abram, Abram, know for certain, please pay attention to the words that scripture uses, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Know for certain. Know for certain your offspring. What offspring? Righteous offspring. Genesis 15, 6, it was counted to him as righteousness. He believed God. Righteous offspring. Seed of the woman. Righteous offspring. They will be sojourners. They will be servants. They will be afflicted because God has put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. There will be a striving and a struggle between them. God will bring judgment on your offspring's oppressors. He says, I will bring judgment. Why? Because the wicked have never had a free pass before God. The wicked have never just got away with what they want to get away with before God. Afterward, your offspring shall come out with great possessions. God provides the needs of his people. He says for 400 years, they will be afflicted for 400 years. I need to let you know, boy, your pastor's a nerd. I spent so many hours trying to trace the start of this 400 years. And the Bible says it's 400, it's 430, it's 450, and I spent so much time. And here's the practical lesson to give you from your pastor. Don't spend time chasing things that the Bible doesn't give answers to. We don't know when this time period started. We have good reason to base it somewhere, but the point of this passage is not precision dating. The point of this passage is found at the end of verse 16. All of this is going to happen to your offspring, and in the fourth generation, they'll come back here. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Pastor, can you help me try and understand something about today's message for my life? Yep. God is really patient with sinners. But God is not going to be patient and endure your sin forever. 
and a judgment will come upon you. And judgment is already looming for those who do not believe. Because of disobedience, the wrath of God is coming, says in Ephesians, says in Colossians, Revelation is full of it. Here, God is telling Abraham, your offspring are going to go into a land where they will be pressed into service, they will be sojourners, and they will suffer. They'll be afflicted. Well, why? Because God is allowing the Amorites to sin to the fullest extent that they want to sin. Look what he says. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. They're going to go from bad to worse and more so. And in the fourth generation, I will bring your people back here. Interesting. We see this with Noah. God does not let mankind live in sin forever until he comes upon them with his judgment. We see this with Noah. He's building the ark. He gets on the ark and God's judgment comes on the people of the earth. We see this even with Pharaoh in Egypt. Pharaoh is going to go on arrogantly opposing God and then God's judgment is going to come on him. We see this with Joshua and the Amorites. Do you understand that the conquest of the land of Canaan is not just the people of Israel killing people at will? It is the judgment of God. As I read one commentary this past week. As Israelites flood into the land and God pours out his judgment on the fullness of of the iniquity of the Amorites in the fourth generation. We see this in Romans 1. Romans 1 tells us over and over, people, they turn from this, they've worshipped the creature instead of the creator, they have known God, but they've not acknowledged him as God or worshipped him as God, they've traded natural relations for unnatural relations. All of Romans 1, 18 through 32, it's just, oh, it's terrible. Why? Because God will let the leash of sin out as long as you run with it. But when he jerks the leash back, it's only going to be judgment. We see this in Revelation. Would you turn there with me actually and take a look at this? When God pours out final judgment, Revelation chapter 16. Pastor, I thought you were preaching Exodus. You're in Genesis, talking about Romans. Now you're in Revelation. What in the world? All of the Bible. We preach all of the Bible. Look at this, in Revelation 16, for those that are unfamiliar with the book, this is the point in time where John is telling us, inspired by the Holy Spirit, about the wrath of God being poured out on sin. That's what's happening in the setting of Revelation chapter 16. God is pouring out. You may have a subheading that talks about the seven bowls of God's wrath. Each bowl being poured out is an escalation in judgment. And look what it says, just in three simple verses. Verse 9, they disobedient ones, were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God and had, who had power over these plagues. Look at the end. They did not repent and give him glory. Verse 11, and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. Look down at verse 21. Great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of hail because the plague was so severe. God is going to let you run with sin. He's going to let the disobedient, unrepentant sinner run as far and as wide as they possibly can in their sin. But a judgment will come upon them. And as we look at this, what hope do we draw? God says, your offspring... In verse 16, 
to Abraham, Genesis chapter 15, verse 16, your offspring, Abraham, they shall come back here to this promised land. Listen, for us, as believers today, we are sojourners. We are pressed into service. We are afflicted just as the Israelites were in Egypt. We are in a spiritual Egypt in this life. And there is a deliverer who is redeeming a people that he dwells with. They shall come back here. Suffering always precedes glory. All the time. Maybe you have a moment in your life, maybe you have something in your life where you are suffering. And you are, in, I'm not talking about, maybe I am. Where will the next meal come from? Or what will happen with our job? Or this and that and the other thing and all these cares. Maybe those are real afflictions. Maybe it is a heavy spiritual affliction. I just want to be rid of this suffering. Nobody likes to suffer. We all want to be rid of suffering. But our suffering, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4.17 prepares for us an eternal weight of glory that outweighs the suffering. Our suffering is for a purpose. Our suffering causes us to appreciate what God does in a greater way. God, writing through Moses in Exodus chapter 1, wants the reader to remember all things are happening according to God's plan. As the Israelites are plunged into slavery, as Pharaoh, who does not know Joseph, appoints taskmasters over them and deals ruthlessly with them, God is executing his plan to deliver his people in his time according to his ways. God wants his people to see his promise in affliction. And so some questions to help you apply today's message to your life. When things don't go your way, or when things go in a less than ideal direction, is your first impulse to recall to mind the promises of God? or to question where he is. When things in your life go in a less than ideal direction, when they don't go the way that you want, is your first impulse, I trust you, Lord, or where are you, Lord? Do you look around and take stock of God keeping his covenant to you through faith in Jesus Christ? Paul said that all the promises of God find their yes and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? I may be talking to you today and you may say, this, Pastor, this makes no sense. I don't even understand and quite frankly don't care about what you're talking about. Man, that I'm praying for your soul because for God's people, we're looking at this and saying, he will deliver me. I will be delivered from this bondage. If this means nothing to you, then I'm praying that you will respond through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who died for you, who shed his blood for you to free you from the bondage of sin and give you an eternal hope of a promised land and a perfect Savior that will deliver you from this bondage. Are you trying to slip past suffering and skip your way to glory? Ask me which question I struggled through this week. You trying to just write on to glory, Pastor, and skip through the suffering? Yeah, I think, I think that's where my mind was a little bit this week. You see, we don't like suffering, and I don't want to suffer. I don't want to see people suffer. And I think that what I would rather do is just skip my way to glorification. You realize that God could have just picked up his people and put them in the promised land and wiped the land clean of everybody that was there, right? We understand that, right? But he didn't do that. He caused them to be afflicted. Why? 
so that they and we could see the power and glory of God in delivering and giving rest in the land. We will come to a point in the Bible, oh, it'll go sideways in a quick hurry after that, but we will come to a point in the Bible where it says, and they had rest on every side from all their foes. That's our hope through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Israelites are not free from Egypt by any means. They're just being plunged into slavery. But when God's people read this account, Exodus 1, when we read through the Exodus, we grow in our faith as we watch God carry out his deliverance of evil. He is setting the stage for his deliverance of Israelite people. As we read this account, we see God keeping his covenant through the fruitful multiplication of his people in the midst of affliction. Pharaoh's doing everything he can to kill them. And there are more of them. And there are more of them. And there are too many of them. And they're too strong. You know what? That gives me great hope, people of God. Oh, man, the world sure is getting bad. But God is multiplying his people. We should never think or view ourselves in the minority in this life as Christians. We see God keeping his covenant through the fruitful multiplication in the midst of oppression. We see it through two faithful midwives, Shifra and Pua, who disobeyed man and feared God. Let's pray today. Heavenly Father, we come before you. Thankful, God, for your word. Thankful for your truth. Thankful for faith in Christ. God, it has been challenging to open your word. It has been challenging to talk about the death of the innocent, the death of the unborn. Father, even in that, even in that abomination and that affliction on mankind, we see you working. We know that we have a deliverer. We know, Father, that you will not leave your people. We have great promise. As we begin to see the affliction of your people, Israel, we are reminded of the great hope that we have of deliverance. And we pray, Lord Jesus, come quickly. How long, O oh Lord, will you contend with sin? How long will you suffer sinners to sin? Come, Lord Jesus. We know that when you do, it will be in your perfect time. We know that it will be in your perfect way. And we know that you will take those who through faith in Jesus Christ have been saved by your grace according to your mercy for eternity. God, be with us this day as we go. Be with us as we worship you as we spend time with our families, as we love and acknowledge the mothers you've given us, be glorified in our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us this week. If you have any questions about anything you just heard or if we can pray for you, please contact us at info at Until next time, stay in God's word.